Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 18. Will you thank all of our children for leading us uh, so beautifully in worship this morning? This Palm Sunday morning. Uh, Palm Sunday is the time that we reflect upon Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being heralded king. The crowd would lay down their cloaks, they would uh, take up palm branches, and they would proclaim in unison, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Isn't it ironic in so many ways that this would be the unison of their cry on Friday, or excuse me, on Sunday, that, that would be replaced by the, the cheers to, to crucify him on Friday? That they would desire for him to wear a crown on Sunday, but the only crown that he would wear on Friday would not be a crown that is fit for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but a crown that was placed upon him, thrust upon him, a crown of thorns. This Palm Sunday, we have to ask the question, what went so wrong in the course of just a few days? How, how could the crowd cheer him and then jeer him? How could the crowd celebrate him and then condemn him? That's the focus of our attention this morning. Hopefully it'll be the focus of our affections this morning as we gaze into the motivations of those that would eventually crucify Jesus uh, that first holy week. And as we gaze upon the characters that are there in Scripture, we begin to see in a mirror that their motivations are, are not that far away from the motivations that would lead each and every one of us that are here this morning to reject the way of Jesus to reject his lordship in our lives. Notice with me in John chapter 18, the motivation of the religious leaders, which was a motivation that was born out of self-interest. Starting in verse 19, we read the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, that being Jesus, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, slapped Jesus saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Aniston sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Then we move to verse 28 that gets us to Pilate. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. We think of Holy Week, a substantial part of our reflection during Holy Week is what we know to be the trials of Jesus, which is really a misnomer. It should be titled the mistrial of Jesus. This is not a judicial inquiry that is searching for the truth. This is a kangaroo court in every way. Trials uh, were supposed to be held in a particular way. There, there was 2,000 years ago what was called the Mishnah, which the Sanhedrin would have been guided by that, that gives very specific court regulations. How do you prosecute someone on a criminal trial? When you're walking through the Gospels, the four Gospels, and you compare it to the very regulations of the Jewish leaders during that time, you'll find 18, 18 missteps. 
18 parts of their own order that they, they really put to the side to bring, uh, to bring about a conviction sentence as quickly as possible. I'm not going to list all 18. But to get a little bit of the flavor of the mistrial of Jesus, trials were to be public, never secret. We see it as secretive here in the Gospels. They required a minimum of 23 judges. We certainly don't see that in the Gospels. Someone was required to speak on behalf of the accused. We don't see that in the Gospels. A conviction was required. Uh, a conviction required the testimony of two or three witnesses. We don't see that. The high priest should not participate in the questioning. We certainly see that they do in the case of Jesus. Trials were not to occur during a Jewish festival. We see that they did occur during this time. So all of these things and many more that we could add to it, 18 in total, are conveniently ignored. So the trial of Jesus is the mistrial of Jesus. Now, what were the motivations of the religious leaders 2,000 years ago to get to a conviction of Jesus so quickly, a capital conviction of Jesus so quickly? Well, I remind you that one of the reasons was a theological reason. They had heard from Jesus' own mouth him claiming to be one with the Father. You don't have to go far. In John's gospel, just go to John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said from his own mouth, I and the Father are one. So Jesus claims to be one with the Father. He claims to be one with God. These Old Testament or these religious leaders were they're, they're certainly mined the Old Testament and they were clearly familiar with Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This is an open and shut case for them. It's clear to them. Now it's interesting when you think about it. The religious leaders of the day, they, they fixate upon certain passages of the Old Testament while completely ignoring other passages of the Old Testament. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, says that there are over 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah. There are over in the Old Testament, 300 prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. So, so the religious leaders of the day, what they do is, is they ignore this great witness that would point to the very Messiah being with them and ultimately saying, no, he can't be that. Why? It's not a theological reason. It's more a practical reason. Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders of the day. He was a threat to them financially. He was a threat to them practically. Uh, the, the religious power and the political power, especially in that Jewish world at that time, it was bound up right there with the religious leaders. And so Jesus' presence among them was a threat to them holding tightly to the, to the power structure of that day. And they did not want to let loose of it. So tell us not of the Messiah... He blasphemes God. He should die. It's that simple. Now, Don't be misled. Don't be misled to think that power doesn't corrupt even today. Don't be misled to think, oh, how they got it so wrong and how we get it so right. Power still is a motivating factor for many of us, if not all of us, to choose the way of self and not the way of our Savior. You feel this temptation. I feel this temptation. We simply want to be in control. 
And Jesus says to each and every one of us, relinquish your control to me, submit your life to me, call me not just Savior, but Lord. And we say, hey, I I want to be the architect of my life. I want to be the general contractor of my life. I want to sub all the work of my life out to me and ultimately be the inspector. I want it all to be right here with me. And I'll have you, Jesus, as a consultant that I bring in when I need you. We want to be the captain of our soul, the master of our fate. And Jesus is interested in taking the very will of our life. And that is threatening for each and every one of us. It's easy to sing that old hymn, wherever he leads, I will go. Wherever he leads, I will go. I think we all could relate. It's a whole lot harder to actually live that out because it requires a relinquishment of control. It requires us to truly trust him. This last year in the Eldridge household, we had our our first driver. My oldest son went through the year of having his permit and he's recently driving. He's very responsible. He's a good driver. Do not worry. Coming to and fro from church right here. But I will tell you, it, it was a lesson in, in trust. Many people told us this, Danielle and myself, that one of the parents would be a better teacher than the other. One would be more patient. All people that know Danielle and myself would know Danielle is going to be better, and she certainly was in that setting. Every time that I was with Hayden, especially early on when he was driving, I wanted to interject. I wanted to intervene. I wanted to make sure that he sped up at the right time and slowed down at the right time. I wanted to make sure, I wanted to control everything about his driving experience because as parents we know what can occur in that kind of setting so I wanted to control that I remember very vividly one time he turns to me in sort of exasperation and he says don't you just trust me and I was like no I don't I mean (laughs) no no I don't And it's easy for us to laugh about that, and it's easy for us to go through those processes with our grandchild or our children as they are imperfect drivers having to learn. But there's a whole other thing to talk about this spiritually. There are times where, where we are in the passenger seat of our spiritual life, and we're saying to our Lord and our Master, speed up, slow down, let me drive. I know better. Let's stop right here. Let's not go there. And Jesus says, don't you trust me? And how will we answer that question? It's a question of discipleship. And it's a question that the religious leaders simply said no to. And it is a question that oftentimes in our own sanctification, our own following of Jesus, we would say, hey, how about you get in the back and I'll drive you around Jesus. And he says, let me take the wheel. So the religious leaders, they're motivated out of self-interest. And we are too. But now I want us to gaze upon Pilate here. Because Pilate also has a motivation. His motivation is born out of convenience See it with me in your copy of God's Word in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
Jesus answered, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom's not from the world. If it was from the world, he's saying to Pilate, I wouldn't even be here before you here. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? A little confused, quizzical here. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, hey, I, I don't find any guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. Let's, let's pause the story for a second. We'll come back to it. We won't leave it unresolved here. Let's go back to Pilate. Let's be reminded of who Pilate was. He's a Roman governor. Rules from AD 26 to AD 37. Power hungry, lust for celebrity. He has utter disdain for Jewish customs, oftentimes tramples over them uh, as, as a Roman governor in this time here. The only reason Pilate gets involved is because the chief priests, they cannot uh, give and sentence uh, Jesus, and they can't execute a capital punishment, so they've got to go up the, the ladder of authority, and so that's why they've got to appeal to Pilate here. It's the only reason he's getting involved in this point. He asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? He's not asking, are you the Messiah? He's not asking, are you the one that the Old Testament prophecies uh, predicted? He, he's actually asking something that's very pragmatic. It's very practical. Are you a threat? Are, are you a threat to Caesar is what he's asking. He, he's trying to say, are you, are you going to make life difficult for me here is what he's asking. Are you a threat to Caesar? Jesus answers, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, this is a good example of Pilate hearing something, Jesus meaning something else. They're missing each other. What Jesus is talking about is not how Pilate is hearing this, but the, the bottom line is, as Jesus is saying here, I'm not coming here to overthrow Caesar. I would have done that already if that was my aim, if that was my goal. So I, you don't have any threat here. Pilate comes out, this pagan ruler in verse 38, and he says, I find no guilt in him. In chapter 18, that, that's the first statement of Pilate understanding this is a lamb without spot and without blemish. He's going to say it two more times. So you've got a pagan political leader who looks at Jesus and sees the mockery of the whole thing, the injustice of the whole thing. Three times he says, I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him, and I find no guilt in him. Meanwhile, you've got Peter the leading disciple of Jesus who says, I don't know him, I don't know him, I really don't know him. And here Pilate is backed into a corner. And he thinks to himself, oh, I've got an amazing solution. I have the ability at Passover, and there's a custom for me to let one innocent prisoner out. It's sort of a, a token of appreciation, and it's a goodwill offering that I get to establish the, the power of the Roman government, and I get to say life and death before people. And so he thinks to himself, I've got this guy named Barabbas, and I've got this guy named Jesus. Certainly, if I put this up for a vote, they would choose Jesus. And so Barabbas thinking that he has the right solution to his problem, says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
And the response of the crowd is, not this man, don't release Jesus, but rather Barabbas. In Mark chapter 15, they shouted all the more, the crowd did, crucify him. So Pilate, he wishing to satisfy the crowd, it's this little psychological insight. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Do you know why Pilate rejected Jesus? Because he found him guilty? No. He saw him to be innocent here. What what does Pilate do? He's wholly pragmatic. He's wholly practical about this. He wants to satisfy the crowd and the religious leaders. And so what he does in this moment is he chooses the path that is personally and professionally convenient. Pilate chooses not the way of Jesus, but he chooses the way of comfort and convenience. And don't think that Pilate is the first nor the last to choose that path. I mean, every one of us, every one of us feels the tyranny of convenience. The co-founder of Twitter, Evan Williams, recently said that convenience in our society decides everything. Well, that's a statement. Convenience in our society, it decides everything. All of us here, we feel the undertow pulling us to the way of the efficient, the way of the easy, the way of comfort and convenience. And here we're called to the way of Jesus, which is a costly discipleship. It is the call of Jesus to take up our cross, to deny self, and to follow him. And we want to say, well, Jesus, can you make it just a little bit more convenient for us? Can you make it just a little bit easier for us? Can you fit it a little bit better in our schedule? I'll give you my time as long as it's sort of in this little lane here. Two weeks ago, Danielle and I and our boys and a group from Dawson, we were in the Amazon region of Ecuador, and there was a women's conference that was occurring, and we had our ladies that were speaking. We were doing some backyard Bible club uh, events with one of the villages, and I was talking to a group of ladies who had come to this ladies' conference. And through a translator, I asked the question, you know, how far did y'all come from thinking to myself, you know, it's a 30-minute hour away, and through the translator, she said, oh, we walked from our village eight hours, got a bus, and took an eight-hour ride on the bus stop, from the bus stop, on the bus here to this conference. And then she said something, but he's worth it. And in that moment, I sort of misunderstood what the translator was saying here, and I just sort of heard, it's worth it. And I thought to myself, and I, I sort of under my breath said, well, I don't know, I don't know if, that, if it's worth it. I don't know how good this conference is going to be here. That's a long way to come. And then the translator looked at me and she said, she's not talking about you. She said, he is worth it. She's not talking about the conference. He is worth it. She didn't come because she heard there'd be an American group here from Birmingham, Alabama. She came out of obedience to the call of discipleship upon her life to worship with people all across Ecuador. He is worth it. That's why she's here. And boy, it's a good reminder. Is he worth it for you? 
to slay the idol of convenience and comfort in your life and in my life? Is he worth it? Is he worth it for you to choose not to bow down to comfort and convenience, but to choose the way of the cross? Because so often comfortable Christianity is not the way that leads us to an authentic pursuit of Jesus. Is it really ever convenient for you to stand for what is right in a world that so often celebrates what God calls wrong? Is that, is that ever really going to be comfortable or convenient for any of us here? Is it really ever going to be all that comfortable and convenient for you to choose the way of forgiveness and to walk and to pursue reconciliation with those that you're out of step with? Is that ever really convenient? Is that ever really going to be comfortable? Is it ever comfortable or convenient for you to share your faith with a neighbor or to share your faith with a loved one? Did you ever, do you ever accidentally do that? Just slip into that? Is it ever comfortable or convenient? Is it ever comfortable or convenient to sacrificially give of your time, to give of your resources, to give of your gifts and the service of God? Is it ever comfortable? Is it ever convenient? And that young lady in Ecuador, her words, they ring out to me. He is worth it. He, he is worth the crucifixion of our comfort for the costly pursuit of what he calls us to. He is worth it. His goodness, his glory, it's worth it all the time, every time. But we're tempted. We're tempted like Pilate to reject Jesus out of a motivation of convenience. We're tempted like the religious leaders to reject Jesus and choose our own way out of a motivation of self-interest. And finally here, I want us to look at the crowd because here we have on Palm Sunday a crowd that is saying, save us. Let's crown him king. And now, now we don't have a, a litany of who was in that crowd and who was in that crowd, but you would imagine there would be this overlap between these two crowds. And all of a sudden, this crowd is rejecting him. How and why do they reject him? And that's a rejection that's born out of deceit. Again, look with me in verse 39 of John 18. So do you want to release, or do you want me, Pilate's asking, to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not the first time, but again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. John gives us a good bit of understatement here. When you compare John's gospel to, to Mark and Matthew's gospel, Barabbas isn't, he's not a petty thief, Barabbas is an insurrectionist. In, in terminology of the 21st century, Barabbas is being crucified because he's a terrorist to the Roman government. He's murdered people in the cause to overthrow Rome. Rome's got Barabbas, and you know what they want to do to Barabbas? They want to make him, they want to make him a prime example of anyone and everyone who comes against the Roman government. This will be your fate. And so Pilate's in this dilemma thinking for sure, for, for sure, the innocent one, Jesus, would be the one who ultimately is let go and Barabbas would be the one that is crucified here. But again, why does the crowd choose Barabbas? They didn't have social media there. They're not passing around who Barabbas is to everyone. Mark chapter 15 gives us the, the motivation that John assumes that we know. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Don't miss that. If you miss this, you miss the motivation. 
the crowd is deceived. The crowd is called up in a mob mentality. The crowd doesn't have all the details. They certainly don't understand the cosmic scope of what is unfolding before them here. They're duped. And they teach us a lesson that we all should be reminded of. We should consider the sources. We should consider, are we being swept up in the crowd of popular opinion, blowing in the wind a popular opinion, or are we standing in the truth of God's Word and of Jesus Himself, who's the way, the truth, and the life? Never before. It's daunting to think this. But never before in human history are there more words in print More words online. We are drowning in a sea of words. But quantity, my friends, it doesn't always equal quality, does it? And there's never a time that we must ask, what Pilate asked, what is truth? What will be the standard of truth, that we sift through the endless voices that vie for your attention and my attention, but they don't just vie for your attention. The voices, they they vie for your adoration. They vie for your worship. They vie for your allegiance. And so we have to, as followers of Jesus, ask and be able to answer the question, what is truth? And the truth that we have before us, that all of our information should sift through, is the truth of God's Word. We have to be discerning men and women in a day and age where words are plentiful and truth at times can be elusive. Who are you standing in? What are you standing on? I'm reminded of Paul writing to the church at Rome when he comes to the 12th chapter. He says, stop being conformed to the patterns of this world. J.B. Phillips was a paraphraser of the Bible. He has the living Bible. And he so vividly gets the essence of that passage when he says, stop being molded. Do you remember when you were a little kid and you could play with Play-Doh and you could manipulate that Play-Doh by just squeezing it and turn it in such a way way that it could look like what you wanted it to be fashioned into? And Paul is saying, stop being squeezed, conformed into the mold of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. We, We must be men and women who are saturated in the truth so that we can detect what is the lies of this world. We must be able to be so familiar with with the, the smell test of truth that when the counterfeit comes our way, we say, uh, I'm not sure, but something doesn't smell right about that. And the only way that we become those kinds of men, we become those kinds of women, is we are men and women who love the truth of God's Word and stand in the truth of God's Word, lest we be swept up in the crowd that is misled and misinformed. It happened then. Do not be confused. It can happen today. So here we have Barabbas who goes scot-free while Jesus is crucified. 
And it really is helpful for us to, to end our time together by gazing upon Barabbas. Because as we talk about the, the way of rejection, I, I want you to know that this Palm Sunday, we're not just focusing upon this as a history lesson. But the reason and motivations that the religious leaders and Pilate and the crowd reject Jesus, they're contemporary. I mean, this is, this is why you and this is why I, this is why we reject the, the Jesus and the path that he calls us to. We can choose the motivation of self-interest. We can choose to be compromised by convenience. We can choose to go the way of deceit and to be swept up into the crowd. And every one of us here today, we're guilty as charged. In some form or some fashion, we choose our way instead of his way. We choose the way of self instead of the way of the Savior. We are guilty as charged. And the verdict of our guilt and our sin is clearly stated for us in Scripture. The wages of sin, it is death. That's what we deserve. But I remind you of the gospel this morning. I remind you that Barabbas, who deserved to die, he goes free because the one who knew no sin died in his place. I remind you of the hope of the gospel that Barabbas, he received what he didn't deserve, which is forgiveness. And and he, Jesus, received what he didn't deserve, which is death. Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. And Jesus will die in your place. Jesus will die for you if if you would turn to him as as a guilty sinner and realize that he came to this earth 2,000 years ago to live a life that you could not live, a perfect life, and died a death that you deserve to die, a death for your sins. And he took your place as he took Barabbas' place, and Barabbas received forgiveness and freedom so you can receive forgiveness and freedom if you would just today turn to him. If you would just today confess that you're a sinner and believe in the finished work of the gospel and commit your life to him, you too can experience forgiveness. You too can experience what you have not earned nor you deserve, but it's paid in full by the perfect one and the innocent one, Jesus. So so let's marvel at the hope of the gospel. Let's marvel in the words that were written hundreds of years ago by that great Methodist hymn writer, Charles Wesley, who would say, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who whom to death pursued amazing love. How can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. This is our hope. This is the gospel. This is what we relish in, not only on Palm Sunday, but every Sunday and every day. This is our faith. Let us pray.